Hello and welcome to Mike Martin Asks. This week I have a very, very special guest for you. Uh, I'm really excited about having him on. Um, he's actually, we only met about a year ago, but we've become very, very good friends. Now this guy's been in affiliate marketing since 2007, I believe he said, which is 16 years now. But one of the things that stood out to me is when I was talking to him about his figures and his past and his business is he didn't get to 100 grand a month until 2016, right? So there's so many people out here who tell you, you can become a millionaire in a month, you can become a millionaire in a year, you can, you fucking can't, right? It took him nine years to get to six figures a month, and it does for all of us. Everybody sells the dream, okay? Not only that, he's a best-selling author, which is great, because we both like writing books. He is the host of the List Building Lifestyle podcast, which I've been on, which is absolutely brilliant. And if anybody's ever heard the saying, a giver or a taker? Is he a giver or a taker? Now, you might be thinking of that in a sexual way, or you could be thinking of that in a, in an entrepreneur way. In our industry, we have a shit ton of takers, okay? Not very many givers, but this guy's one of the biggest givers, okay? One of the biggest givers in the industry. In fact, I've got four webinars booked in in the next 12 weeks that this guy set up for me, and he's not took a penny off me for it. So the guy's very, very generous. He's brilliant at what he does. He's one of the most respected guys in the industry. Um, I think he's fucking amazing, and he's one of the few that, that gives without receiving. Um, and his name is Igor Kefitz. You okay, my friend? Tell us who you are. Dude, um, I've never been celebrated for being slow. I, I really, I, I love that. I, I absolutely love that. And uh, to answer your question, I am definitely a giver in every sense of the word. So <laughs> yeah, well, um, who I am, honestly, um, I got started in, in affiliate marketing just, uh, because I, I, I recognized that having a job was a bad idea. It was shortly after reading Robert Kiyosaki's rich dad, poor dad, uh, when the, the, the switch flipped, you know, and, 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 and I recognize that, you know what, you can't get rich on a job. And I really wanted to get rich because at some point in my life, I started recognizing that money beyond anything else is a social status. And those who have it just have a much better life. They have more freedom. They have more decision-making ability. They just enjoy life differently. And, the, and their life has more meaning, more colors. And at the time I was uh, working a, at a toxic facility where my job was load, just uh, loading this, these jugs with green toxic goo onto a lift and they would ship it to Brazil and Argentina. So I was working, uh, wearing a hazmat suit. I was forced out of the workshop uh, for 15 minutes out of every 45 minutes that I worked, because if you stayed longer without taking a break outside, you were breathing in too many fumes, and that was considered to be you know, cancerous. And before you were allowed to go home, you had to take a chemical shower with a special chemical soap that was designed to rub off the, the the very tiny little chemicals of your skin. And we had one guy there who didn't want to do it and kept going home without actually taking the shower. Two months later, was sent to see a doctor and discovered he had skin cancer. Like this job was really dangerous. But the reason I hated it wasn't because of the, of the toxicity. It was because it was meaningless and pointless. It was a dead end job with no career prospects, and 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 most importantly, like I wasn't enjoying it. It had no meaning to me whatsoever. 
I wasn't growing. It wasn't challenging me. It was pure manual labor day in and day out. And there were guys there working for like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And I, I really didn't get it. So I started looking into the self-help industry, uh, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Kiyosaki, Bob Proctor, all the greats. And I uh, just got inspired. I started looking into online and uh, got involved with a network marketing company, which I failed miserably with. But it's through that company I've discovered affiliate marketing. And uh, also another skill that I rely on every single day now is uh, list building and email marketing that became my bread and butter. And so eventually, after I succeeded as an affiliate, I also decided to go and teach people how to do it myself. And now uh, I got these two businesses. One is affiliate marketing. The other one is teaching people how to do it. So which is your favorite? Teaching people. You like teaching? I absolutely love teaching. I don't know why, but I, I, I can geek out on the way you present an idea to somebody who doesn't know. Because what I discovered along the way um, is that not everyone is as passionate, let's go, call it that way, as you and me about affiliate marketing or making money or, or any kind of technique or strategy. Most people, they, they sort of reject it, if you know what I mean. Like as soon as I started making money online, I started telling people how I do it. And I noticed it just flies over their head. Oftentimes they reject the idea before they even understand it. Many think we do some kind of brain surgery here. I was chatting with, uh, do you know what a banya is? No. Uh, so Russian banya is like uh, a sauna, but the Russian version. So uh, a couple of years back, I was in a Russian banya with a few guys. And one of them works here in Toronto in the finance space. Very accomplished dude makes, uh, I would assume, uh, high six figures, uh, but it's a job, right? Never own his own business, but he's in finances. He understands derivatives. He understands like mortgages, interest rates and everything. But I started telling him about what I do and it's like, you see his eyes kind of go larger and larger and larger. And it's like, he looks at me now like I'm walking on water. I don't know why. Another another friend of mine um, owns a restaurant, a sushi restaurant, so he can he can make like really high quality sushi. He went to Japan, studied. He started a, you know a bunch of restaurants. He understands so much about so many things. He heard me describe what I do, and and so one of the webinars that I've done, and he and he again treats me like I'm on a pedestal for some reason. Like a lot of people think that you need to be some like you need to be made of 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 a different material or or like to be a superhero or a genius uh to do what we do but that's not true and so we have we always have to find a way as teachers as educators um to present ideas to people in a way that they don't reject them they don't think oh that's not for me i can't do that that because that's the primary concern that i see the primary barrier that i think stops people from from truly doing what we do yeah, I've got to agree with that. I mean, I, I, I've I, told so many people, so many times, because what, what, what I do is very different to what you do, but also very, very similar. And I think it's very similar in a way that when, whenever I'm teaching somebody to do something, it's like, right, what you do is you get the small win, right? If you get a small win and you do it once, right? Don't say, right, so how can we scale this small win? How can we do the fucking small win 500 times? <laughs> and then it's a big win. And people are like, but that gets super boring. It gets, And that's why people don't succeed because they don't, 
just right that little boring thing that we did there worked right so let's see how we can get that done 500 times a day and then find another small win that's boring and say right how can we do that 500 times a day and 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 that's kind of i think the difference is people don't have the staying power for that Uh, no they don't no they don't and i think another um unique character trait that i think you possess that I think you developed. I don't think you've had it uh, early on. Even though I didn't never met you, I, it's a, it's a trait that successful entrepreneurs have that they develop as a muscle. You're able to take a process and you're able to to break it down into smaller steps because you've mastered the art of um, taking a big process and having somebody without a skill actually execute on that process uh, within your team. And and the teams you're building are probably much larger than my own. Um, and I've always struggled with that. I'll be honest with you, because my approach to to processes was to go and look for talent that, that can do what I do. Uh, but I didn't realize just how many hours I put into the to developing the skill. Um, and then again, same challenge with educating others how to do things. You really have to then uh, kind of drop your own level of awareness, which is uh, probably, you know, at a point where it's like, okay, everything is easy for me within the scope of this of this business, right? And then it's like, well, if somebody's brand new to this, how can I break it down for them so they feel like it's a win after win after win? Because most people approaching a new skill or a new business, for them, it seems like a giant mountain that they have to conquer. They don't know where to start. Yeah, I never, I, I, never, I do that naturally, but I've never thought about it that way. Yeah, I, I've just been reading a book called The Chimp Paradox. And he explains it as, as you've got a chimp brain, which is your emotional brain, and you've got um, your um, human brain, which is like your logical brain. And he said, and if you think of everything through as your chimp brain, it's always looking at the top of the mountain and trying to figure out how much further it's got to go to get there. So it gets super depressed, super pissed off. It's always looking at the mountain. It's like, fuck that. Whereas if you've got your logical brain, it's like, okay, what do I have to do today to move me to that next step? What do I have to do tomorrow to move me to that next step? And, and kind of structuring the approach up the mountain gradually. And then when they get to the top, like, fuck, I'm here. <laughs> you know, what could be really challenging about that process is, uh, you know, we, we, we sometimes think that we are logical, but in reality, it's like you're saying the chimp is running the show. So I used to think that it's the human driving the car and the chimp is on the passenger seat and, you know, he's grabbing the wheel every now and again. And you're like, no, no, go away. And it's like, you're trying to grab the wheel. What really happens is it's the chimp driving the car and you're trying to grab the wheel every now and again. So you have to reason with yourself. And, you know, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to appeal with logic to an emotional part of yourself. Um, and that can be tremendously challenging. And what works better, again, which is what you do so well, is you give it what it needs to do in small chunks. I, I think there's another name for this concept, uh, something called Kaizen or something. Um, it's a, either a Japanese or a German concept where, you know, by by mounting these small wins, just like you said, one small win after another make for a bigger win. And that's tremendous because the other element that I think is really important to mention is that you have several small wins in a row, you've built momentum. And once you're building momentum, body in motion stays in motion. You know, that's why getting started on anything is so difficult, whether it's writing or building or doing anything or even exercising. You know, if you're exercising, you know that getting started is the hard part and you have to find all the different ways to trick yourself into just getting that first rep in. But once you're in, it's in, right? So the the, the momentum you build as, as a result of doing small wins is absolutely critical for success. And, um, 
I've always had, uh, ever since I met you, I've always had insane admiration to your ability to just remain in momentum for so long uninterrupted. And I know you're a really focused guy and you know to zone everything else out. And I know you got your office structure and you know you don't even let your employees come into the office just so they don't distract you. And I think that's a tremendous, just absolutely incredible, incredible skill uh, that you've built because you know we've both met so many successful entrepreneurs, both offline and online, who just, let's face it, they're dysfunctional. And as soon as they hit a little bit of, of that sort of high, you know, made their first million or, you know, started, you know, making, you know, 10, 20, 30K a month, like they start getting distracted into buying the next shiny object or, or trying to build a bigger house for themselves or something like that or whatever. Like I was never able to do that because I recognized that as soon as I'm distracted with, you know, uh, chasing some shiny thing. I lose focus in my business and I didn't like that. Do you find when you do buy, buy something shiny as well, you, you end up going on like a rampage? Uh, so so if you go and buy yourself, like, let's say you, I think I think you drive a, a Porsche. Um, you go and, Let's say if I bought a Porsche, right, I've, I've got a, an electric car that, that work pays for. Um, but before that, I had a big old 2009 uh, Mercedes minibus thing with eight seats in the back, which we could bump into things and that. I didn't care. But I found that if I went and bought a Porsche, I, let's say I went and bought a black Porsche today, right? I would definitely go on a rampage. I'd go, I'd be like, right, I'm going to buy the red one and I'm going to buy the white one. And then I'd be like, I'm going to have to buy a bigger house because I can't fit three cars on me drive as well as my missus's car. And I'd go on this. So I just don't let myself ever. <laughs> You're absolutely right, man. And, 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 you know, since most, so I, I used to live in Israel and Israel is a lot like the UK where there's less space. So every house, uh, if you do have a house, you have one parking spot. Uh, most people live in apartments, so you don't see them living big like in the U.S. and Canada. Then I moved to Canada, and Canada is very much like the U.S. back in the 60s where the dream is to have a big house, two, three-car garage, and a driveway that can fit two, three more cars. And so when I came, I I, I, I couldn't fathom this, and so I intentionally stayed in a townhouse that it was rather small. It had one uh, one garage spot and one parking slot. So I could, I only had one car, but then a few years go by and you live in this environment where everyone has a bigger house and a big driveway. So you end up expanding as a result. So now I live in a house that can fit seven cars, like a two car garage and five cars can fit on the big driveway. I got two Porsches instead of having one regular car. Uh, one of them is a GTS version, which means it has a four, 450, I think, horsepower. So you can really go nuts on the highway. And, you know, the house is really big. So I, I work in this space where I'm right now. It's a basement, but it's the size of, an, of the apartment that I used to live in when I started with my business. And there's two more floors uh, of, of equal size and lots of rooms. And for every room, there's a toilet as well. So there's a washroom. So there's literally like six or five washrooms in the house, which of course we never, you only use like two. And it, it's ridiculous because um, coming from a background where I came from, this is exactly the word you described is exactly how I feel. It's like going too far and going overboard and it's distracting too. Like for example, my, uh, my garage has two of these things that, you know, make it close the door and open it. And one of them has been broken 
for about a year, which means I have to one garage door. I have to manual, like I have to use my hands to just close it and open it up. And I still didn't fix it because I'm afraid that as soon as I'm going to get fixing that thing, I'm going to do this thing, this thing, this thing. It's kind of like my wife wanted to redo the kitchen. And it started out with a project that she budgeted about $50,000 for. I said, you know what? You handle the project. I don't want to deal with it. It's going to distract me. So you handle it. You just update me on what's going on and what the budget is and whatnot. So every now and again, we get an update. And eventually, within about three or four weeks, it turned out to be a complete remodeling of the entire floor. Why? Because I want to change the appliances in the kitchen and the cabinets, which means I now need to expand this area and, and move this area. And we also need to take down this wall. So it's going to affect the other room. So you know what? Let's move the kitchen to this room. Let's move the island over here. And we're going to make a window on this wall, but we're going to uh, shut the window with bricks on this wall. Um, so we're basically moving a window. Uh, then we need to change the floor because the kitchen floor is white uh, and it's marble. And the other rooms, they have wooden floors or something. And then you have to even it up. I was like, no. And I just put a veto on the whole project. I said, we're not doing it. This is it because it, it, it basically required too much and it's you pull with string and, and it, it keeps going, right? Uh, plus, not to mention, we have to move out for two months. I mean, come on. No, I'm, I'm not doing it for just for a kitchen. No, mate, I, I fell for this about a year ago. My missus wanted the kitchen doing. Um, so I basically said, right, I think I, I told her I wanted 25,000 quid to do the kitchen. So I said, I'll give you 25,000 quid for that. And don't ask me for nothing else. So literally we, we started the kitchen and within a few days, the, the kitchen guy said, right, so we're going to rip up all the floor in the kitchen, but it's not going to match going through the rest of the house. And I was like, for oh, fuck's sake. So then they said, right, now we're going to have to screed the whole floor downstairs before we put down the f-. So then they ended up doing the whole floor in the downstairs of the house. They ended up doing the kitchen. And then within about fucking two months, we'd had the driveway done. We'd had a new bathroom done. We, we'd had the back garden done. We did it all done with that fake grass and new decking. And, and it was like, I went, on this complete thing where I just ended up spending about a hundred grand. And I was like at the end, and then, and then she's like, oh, right. So the next thing we need to do is the doors and the carpet upstairs. And I was like, fuck off. I'm not doing the doors. We're keeping the old doors and I'm not touching another thing because I know <laughs> if I give in on that one thing, the next thing will be converting the loft and doing all the rest. Of it. And it's like, I'm just avoiding it at the minute, but that's exactly what happens. You kind of, you, you do that. And the, I think that's a, that's the thing with our industry because we're very cash rich in what we do. You kind of, it's easy to say, yeah, throw 25 grand at that. It's not a problem. But then all of a sudden, right, because you're not, you're not saving up for it. So, so if you were saving up for it and then you'd manage, right, we've got 20 grand. So we've got a budget. We can't go any, anywhere above that. You wouldn't be able to, but once you get to the stage where like, like you've been doing this for 16 years now, once you've been doing this for 15, 16 years the, 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 and you stay focused and you keep doing it, the accumulation of the money that just mounts up over time is a situation where it's like, okay, you can spend that. But then all of a sudden it's like, oh, do you realize we spent hundred K? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think it's nice to be able to spend hundred K and not bad an eye. I think that's that in and of itself is, is a really nice thing where you can have the peace of mind and not have to worry about things. I also think that, um, for me, what's really important is not the things as much as knowing that if I lost my income today, I, I'd be able to sustain myself for, for years to come without having to go look for a source of income, which will give me the peace of mind and the runway that I would need to build things from scratch. And <clears throat> I was just actually having a conversation with um, a gentleman who wrote a book, Wealth on Any Income. 
um, about this earlier today where we were discussing the fact that the more you make, the more you spend. And the key to becoming rich is actually not in making more necessarily. It is in managing your income to set money aside to invest what you save. And that's how you become truly rich or wealthy and not so much by needing a $100,000 a month income. Because there's a lot of people out there who got rich on a much smaller income. It's just they managed their income accordingly. And I've always made a point of spending less than I make, which can be very difficult because, like you said, it's a cash-rich business. You know, Sometimes I, I look at different reports of the companies I've invested in. It's like, oh, revenue, $4 billion. Profit, $1 billion loss. What? Like, There's no <laughs> way I can run my business like that. And um and and these other companies who operate with investor funds or or some other projects, you know, they 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 just they just you know they're drained of cash and oftentimes operate in, in debt. It's it's terrible. I I don't I don't know how people can can sleep well at night knowing that that's the case. I, I was listening to a guy called John Childers, right. And he was one of the best presentation teachers in, back in the 80s, I think it was. Um, I study all these old guru guys and stuff, similar to you've done with like the Tony Robbins and people like that. Um, and, and he basically explains about how, um, how the reason the rich people are so rich is because they've used to, right, they've, they, they've got used to using debt, right, to become rich. So they don't end up paying any tax because they're always in debt. And, he, and, and, and you, I think he used an example like, like Donald Trump. Can Donald Trump could comfortably out of his own pocket, go and buy one of these buildings. Grant Gardone's doing it right now. He could comfortably go and buy one of these five million pound buildings and do whatever he wants to do and sell it and do all the rest of it. But he doesn't. He borrows everybody else's money, gives himself an equity in the overall project, and instead he actually makes money from the outset. So the whole project looks like it's in huge debt. Uh, but he's got that equity in it so that when it does cash out five, six, seven years, and he, and, and he explained it because he made, a, he made a lot of money in property. Um, and he explained it that... Um, so, so basically, that's he said. If you've got a hundred grand to invest into property, he said, what a lot of people would do is go and buy a hundred thousand uh, dollar property, uh, then they'd rent it out, and the equity it, it, it'll equate equity over a period of time. So, let's say over two years, it, it gets ten percent increase in, in 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 what it's worth. So, you've now got one hundred and ten grand. He said, but that's stupid. He said because poor people are scared of debt. He said, so what 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 you should do is you should take ten grand. And invest into property one and get a 90 grand mortgage. You should take 10 grand, invest into property two, property three, property four, property five. He says, because then you've got 10 properties for that 100 grand. You've got a million dollars worth of equity building. He said, and what will happen is then if it goes up that 10% over a two year period, you've actually doubled your 100 grand rather than just making 10K. And when he said it, it kind of like switched the light on him. He had enough thought, holy fucking shit, yes. Uh, I, I haven't got any debt, right? And I've never had any debt. Um, I, and, and I, I'm just trying to think if I owe anything. I don't owe anything on anything. Everything I've got is bought outright. But when he said it, it was kind of like, um, holy shit. Yes, that is, that kind of makes sense. Um, and I think that's what they figure out. And these guys like like Amazon, the way they grew, they just kept building and building and building and building and buying places and, and going into debt, 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 debt. So they were always in negative equity. And because obviously Jeff and the gang, whoever at the top was, had to be on a salary. They were all on good salaries but it was getting further and further and further into until all of a sudden they said, right, let's stop. And then it just explodes. Um, so I think that's why they do it that way, but I'm not yet smart enough to know how to grow a business to the sort of size they do by using debt and things like that. But, but that's coming over the next few years. I believe that that's what's going to come. Um, what was your childhood like in terms of um, the people you were surrounded by? 
Um, I was brought up on council estates. Me, it's like so. But council estates are like 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 welfare houses. We lived in like hostels and shit like that. My mum was on her own with four kids, so we were super super poor. I mean, we didn't used to even have carpets in in the living room. We had no curtains at home. We everyone used to smoke pot in the house all the time, and all the local idiots would come around and get pissed and stuff like that. Pissed is drunk. So I, I had a very rough upbringing, very poor upbringing. But I think. I always used to sit back and I used to speak to my mum and say to her, like, I, I don't want to be like all these guys. I don't want to just grow up and sell weed or or, or or constantly be pissed out in my head walking around doing whatever or figuring out how to get 50 quid so you can get wrecked for a day or two. So that's kind of how I fell out of it because it was like it seemed like a wasted existence. And then kids come what, along, don't they? So then you've got to grow up. <laughs> what do you think? Um, so... Similar to you, I, I grew up, and uh, when I became a conscious adult, I said, "You know what? I don't want to. I, I don't want to see debt. I don't want to have debt, because I grew up in a family that was constantly in debt. My mom and my dad, they were always fighting about money. Our bank balance, and I was aware of this growing up since I was about thirteen, because when we moved to Israel from Ukraine, my parents didn't learn Hebrew in time, so any document, anything, I had to translate. So I knew everything about our family." My dad took me by the hand, dragged me into like social security office to argue with the social security people. And so I was very much in the thick of it and I've seen debt all the time. Um, so growing, when I grew up, I say, you know what? I don't want any debt. I bought my first car, no debt. I bought, um, bought out my parents' debt when I could. I paid off two loans that they had as well. I paid off my brother's debt at one point. So I'm very averse to debt. And I've uh, took me years and years and years before I bought my first place and also did it without debt. I actually pulled out a dividend from my company, the structure, and paid a huge dividend tax on it. And I bought it cash and I felt okay doing it because I hated the idea of debt. Now, but I've seen debt all the way growing up. Um when you were growing up, were you like affected by this or you just um, associate debt with being poor? Um, I think there's two types of debt. In my opinion, I, I feel like there's two types of debt. I feel like there's a debt that makes wealth and there's a debt that that yeah. drains you completely and, and destroys your life and ruins you. Um, I mean, not when we were kids, because there was no internet and stuff like that when I was a kid. Um, so my mom used to change a name about every six weeks. So we'd move into a new house like on, on a council estate, but the council would always take out all the carpets and they, they, so you'd move into an empty house and my mum couldn't afford carpets. So she'd move in, we'd cut the, the, the box off the bottom of the electric machine and, and you could put pounds in and you could keep doing it. So she'd be able to do that with the electric. She'd run up a gas bill and she'd run up all the different bills in a different name. And then once they started coming around, sending bailiffs and stuff around to, to start thinking, we'd move into a different area. We'd move into a hostel in a new area. Then we'd stay in a hostel for a few weeks until my mum could change, she'd change a name, right? And then she'd go to the council in that area because they didn't have all the connection like they've got now. And we'd get a new council house and then we'd run up the debt for like six, eight weeks. And then as soon as they started coming around saying, we're going to take all your stuff and everything, we'd get grab a bag each on our backs, move into another hostel in a different area. And we did that all of our lives throughout our day. I think we were bipolar, which was fucking mental. But it was it was different when people, I tell people about my childhood and all the people I met and all the areas we went and all the things we got to do. It's a lot different than when I, Speak to people who had a normal child. At the time, I was jealous of everybody who had carpets, who had food in the cupboards, who could go home and the tea was on the table. We'd turn up at home and like there'd be 10 guys in the house smoking pot and things like that. It was like, it was completely different. But 
when I look back now and, and I see my kids have got the lifestyle I always wanted, but is it better? I don't know. I, th- I think the, the, the fun we had, I mean, fortunately, none of us was ever, because we were in a lot of dangerous situations, none of us were ever molested or anything like that. If that had happened, then maybe childhood would have been a real bad thing. You know what I mean? But fortunately, none of that ever happened. So we were kind of, it was always, it was all as an adventure. So Adept yeah, was just like something, you'd run it. I mean, the first thing I ever did, I got a job. Um, I got a job for seven grand a year at HSBC. And the first thing I ever did was get a load of credit cards and then go on loads of big holidays and just never paid them back. Because um, I just thought, that's what you do. That's what I've been taught by my mum growing up. You just rip off credit card companies and banks because they're idiots. And then it's like, when I went to buy something, I was like, shit, I can't buy anything. And eventually I had to figure out how to um, wave me way through life. But I couldn't read at 21, so kind of... <laughs> It was a bit. So isn't that insane? How we take on our parents' behavior and belief system without even realizing you're a product of your environment, aren't you? You taught. That's why people who are brought up in 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 areas where they there's cruelty to women uh, and there's cruel or, or people who are brought up on farms and every day they kill cows. Like if somebody killed a cow in front of me, I'd probably attack them and like, don't do that, it's evil. Whereas if somebody's brought up on a farm and every day they see a cow get shot through the head 15 times a day to, to be shipped out from, it's just, it's, it's, it's second nature. Do you know what it's, 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 so I guess, yeah, you're a product of your, your environment, aren't you? And if you, if, if you can put your kids in the right environment, Yes. But it, it, go, it goes like into the psyche because the experience you described, watching your mom take you guys and, and basically rip, rip off the government or whatever, and then you turn around and the moment you become an adult, you do the exact same thing, right? Yep. Because it's not like she told you to do it. It's just you watching her do it and watching that behavior, you automatically assume it's right. With me, I remember when I was... Um, I don't know, 16, 17 years old, I would be waking up in the morning and getting ready to go to the academy. Um, I would I would be having breakfast and across the table from me, my mom would be putting on a bit of makeup before she would go to work. And she would always seem angry and stressed out. One time I asked, like, what's up? Did anything happen? She's like, what do you mean if anything happened? We got cuts at work and I don't know if I'm going to have a job tomorrow. And every day for her was like that. And so... Basically, I learned that you're supposed to be worried about money not coming in tomorrow because that was a major concern in my house uh, that my mom experienced, but my dad didn't. My dad actually never showed any of that. Uh, he always spent money like there's no tomorrow, but I took on my mom's approach um, as, as the more reasonable and responsible approach, I guess. And even today, no matter how many sales I'll, I'll make, I'll be treating my money as if tomorrow I'm not going to have any. And so I need the rainy day fund. I need to be careful with my spending. In fact, even today, when my daughter will forget turn off to turn off the light in her room and go downstairs, I'll actually be angry with her for not turning off the light. Because it's <laughs> wasteful. That. I'm like, I mean, my, my, my lad would say to me, don't drop litter. And I, I don't drop litter, but if he's with me, I will drop litter because I know he pick it up. And he always says to me, right, you can't do that, dad. And I'm like, why? And I'm like, look around the street. And I say to him things like, look around the street. Where's there any litter? And he says, nowhere. And I say, right, so where does where does half of my money go? And he's like, and I'm like, tax. The government are always creating new taxes. And do you know what they have to do with that tax? They have to pay somebody 
<laughs> to clean these streets. So you're creating jobs. And he's like, nope, that's wrong. But I, I wouldn't litter on purpose, but I, I've, I've done it because I do silly little things with him to try and instill an understanding of how it works and how the, the, the people are taught certain rules to follow and they're taught that it's really, really bad to not do that. But then those same people who won't drop a piece of litter outside will happily go home and say, it's Christmas, you're all right, you can have a little glass of wine with your Christmas dinner, my 12-year-old son. And it's like, that's a fucking drug. <laughs> the same as smoking weed. The only difference is the government are getting taxed on it, so, it's, so they tell you it's allowed. So I try and teach my son that don't follow rules blindly. Yeah. Um, can I, 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 think, I think one of the best ways to do it is through storytelling. And I, I'm trying to do the same thing with my 10-year-old daughter. And um, we we watched the Harry Potter movies together. And anytime I watch a movie that where I see some some lessons there, especially entrepreneurial lessons like The Matrix, for example, things like that, um, I would make her to do me a like a summary of the different lessons she picked up from the movie. I actually try to teach her to look at a movie not as much a form of entertainment as much as education, and kind of be picky about the movie the movies that she's watching as much as I can. And so when we watched Harry Potter movies, I said, um, so what can you tell me about Harry? Um, and she's like, well, he always gets in trouble. I said, great. That's perfect that you noticed that. Uh, so what did you conclude from that? She's like, well, that you shouldn't get in trouble. I was like, well, let me propose a, you know, a different perspective. Um, if Harry didn't get in trouble, if Harry didn't break the rules, would he be able to save the hippogriff or would he be able to save his friend Hagrid from being expelled or, or, or would he be able to defeat Voldemort, etc.? And she thought about it. She's like, no, because he broke the rules, he was able to do all these things and he was able to save his friends and do this. So uh, is it okay? So I ask, so is it okay to break the rules? And she's like, yeah, it's okay to break the rules. I was like, well, in your school... I want you to remember that because the goal of your school is to keep you in line because there's only so many teachers and so many kids. So if every child in school would misbehave, they wouldn't be able to control you guys. So I want you to feel that it's okay to break the rules when you feel it's it's time to break the rules. And so, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm also trying to make her aware that whichever structure she's in, um, almost without exception, the rules that are being uh, forced on her are made because of the structure, not because of her and that not to take them as like, as directions for life, because no one told me that. And what's really interesting is that the reason I think I started rebelling against the structure and the system is because my dad rebelled. My dad started out as an army man uh, and he basically broke every rule possible in the army. He's telling me all kinds of stories about bribing different officials and and stealing food from the warehouse and you know making deals with other uh, soldiers to trade something and you know I've always admired that I've really loved that quality about him that entrepreneurial quality because great entrepreneurs don't conform Have you ever seen Only Fools and Horses? No. I swear to god watch it. Right, just just as a thing like this, right? When you're talking about entrepreneurs, this that is the best entrepreneur show, right? He never gets anywhere. He's like he's like a entrepreneur guy. Uh, but what you just said about what your dad doing the deals and things like that, and that was kind of what I was always like growing up. Uh, is I was always trying to make little deals, and I mean, I remember one time, I um, <laughs> I remember. So so I basically took a business cards and and I made them for for, for selling radiators, right? I lived in council estates where there's loads of empty houses. 
So I, I made these things for selling radiators and I went round to all the plumbers guys, all the, all the local plumbing. So I'd knock on their houses. They had a plumbing van in the garden, knock on and say, yeah, mate, I can get you used radiators. Like 10% of the cost are going to cost you if you was to buy them from, um, from the plumbers merchants. You just give me all the sizes. I'll go away, get them here. And we'll, uh, and, and, and we did a deal, right? So, so, so I remember, um, I got this order this one time. So I guess pulls the board off this empty house, council house window, climbs in, goes in, cuts all the radiators off with the, with the hacksaws, takes them off. It's fucking ridiculous, right? This is, this was me being an entrepreneur. So I takes these radiators, brings them out of the thing. And then I walks them th- across the street. They've got this black water dripping out of them, right? It goes through my front door, through my ginnel where I lived and into the back fields where I'd, I'd stashed them all. And then I was going to, and I sold them to the, to the plumber. So I put them all there, sold them to the plumber. And then about, an hour later, the police comes knocking on the door. So they're like, um, he's, he's Chris in? Because they didn't know me. They just knew my brother. I'd moved from, from somewhere miles away. And I was like, nah, nah, Chris, he's not here. He's in a place called Bishop Auckland. So the police are like, all right, it doesn't matter. He's like, do you know what this is? And he shows this black water dripping through. And I was like, not a clue, mate. Never seen it before. So he shuts the door. About 10 minutes later, the police come knocking on the door again. They went, hi, what's your name? I said, hi, I'm Mike. Mike, you're under arrest. And I was like, shit. Yeah, this, that one didn't work out right. And but, but silly things. Now, when I was growing up, that was normal. That was entrepreneurial to me. That was like, well, the government don't count. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't do it if somebody lived there. But these are council houses. Nobody lives in it. It's only the government. And we all hated the government growing up, even though we were probably on benefits because I don't, I can't imagine how else we, my mum would have got any money. Uh, but silly things like that, that entrepreneur, and that's the type of stuff that will be on in in that program. Um, really funny. Um, Things like that that were just like, wow, you, you wouldn't admit to it, but 20, 20, 30, 25 years later or so, I'm, I'm kind of all right with with it nowadays. So what get, talking about things like that, obviously get, give us some give us some brick walls you've hit in your career. Is there any any time yeah, where you've gone? Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, first brick wall, uh, language. So where I was growing up, it was a, it was a shithole. There was no opportunities. There were a few factories that employed most people there. Um, other people were employed on, on the Dead Sea at the hotels. So you either worked hospitality or you worked in a facility of some kind. And if that facility wasn't hiring, you ain't getting a job. An alternative, you drive to you basically drive to the big city every day and come back or take the bus, which resulted in you know ridiculous commute and not it wasn't cost effective for everyone. Um, so I had to look for opportunities that weren't within my physical proximity. And I think that was a curse and a wall, but it was also a blessing because it forced me out into the, into the internet, which was a much bigger opportunity field. Um, so not knowing English or having broken English, if you will, prevented me from like creating content or from getting on video or, uh, you know, understanding things. The second barrier was technical. Um, I only got my first computer later in life. Um, when did you I, learn English then? Uh, through sheer practice and listening and trying to repeat after what I was hearing. Because in Israel, uh, we had access to the the way TV works in Israel. They don't translate uh, verbally. They They put on subtitles. So all the shows I was watching on TV, whether cartoons or not, they were with original English uh, uh, soundtrack and subtitles. 
So I was watching like Family Matters and the Friends, uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, and all these sitcoms. And I would be, and I would try to to model. And and uh, the other part of it was video games. Video games would always would always include dialogue, you know, instructions, things like that. So I would eventually uh, learn English uh, there. And uh, when I started, I still had broken English, but I kind of learned on the job. And you know, I I think it's an important skill to have to be able to learn on the job. I think today people sort of expect to be taught and be taken through a course and uh, to be taken through a certification before they start working or whatnot. But, you know, most of us, again, entrepreneurs, we learn on the job. We figure things out on the job. We learn from mistakes. We learn from trying things and seeing what happens, almost like little scientists, you know, um, hitting up against the the world. Um so that was that was my thing, you know. I was trying things out and they weren't working. I was trying them again in a different way, and eventually I figured some things that worked. And you know, uh, the way I talk today, the way I communicate today, is only a result of like ten thousand hours on the mic, you know, and an actual conversation. I think the the biggest thing that contributed to my English uh, development is um, spending a lot of time on the phone, where I learned another skill, which is selling. I think if you want to be an entrepreneur, you have to you have to learn how to sell. Yeah, you got to sell, aren't you? You got to sell. You've got you've even in the jobs where you don't have to sell, you've got it. So, so what about let's let's think about. So obviously, you've had lots of successes and lots of failures over the years, yeah. Yeah. Can you think of one time where where like so obviously, let's say you, you've tested three, four, five, six different things, and this has failed, and this has failed, and this has failed. What was your like your biggest epiphany you had? You know, you know, like say you went after something, and you're like, oh, I'm going to try this, and and then all of a sudden it worked, and you were like, holy shit! <laughs> yeah, I got, one, I got one. Um, I got a few, but the biggest one by far is I spent about a few months writing a book that I wanted to sell. It was a book about mindset, and uh, I figured. That's what I'm passionate about. So I'm going to sell it. And um, I discovered the hard way that people didn't want to buy it. Meaning that people who are into mindset, they don't want to like buy things. They want to meditate and, and positive think their way to things. So, um, you know, it was only after that I changed to a market that actually wanted to spend money that I discovered that things can work like that. And, um, it was a huge lesson because I really thought it's it's all about my product and my content and how much effort I put into it, how passionate I am about it. When in reality, it was all about the market. It was a very pragmatic situation. You know, it, it was sort of like, look, if there's a market and there's people in it who spend money on a certain type of products, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Sell them what they're already buying. Don't try to like come up with something that you think people will will want to buy, because that's a a much riskier proposition. Mm-hmm. So so, I guess yeah. I mean, you you mentioned a couple of things then, but the first the first thing that jumped to my mind was 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 the chimp brain again. People buy um, w- with emotion, don't they? And then they justify it later with logic. So as long as you can pick, I always say, I always say to my, to my, my, my girls downstairs who do the emails, I always say to her, every single following sequence that we write, I, if we're doing a five day following sequence, I want you to do emotion, logic, urgency, scarcity. So if we've got five days, do two days, emotion, one day, logic, two days, urgency, scarcity. If we've got seven days, break it up three, two, 
three. Uh, is that seven? That's eight. <laughs> you know what I mean? And always, always do it in that same specific emotion because um, I find that the, 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 they say your chimp brain's five times the strength of your, and this is that book I've read recently, uh, five times the strength of your um, human your logic. So if you can get somebody to make a decision emotionally, which is kind of what we do, don't we? We buy, we buy based on like, like, like you just said. I've got two Porsches, not because, but, 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 but yeah, they was, I can, I can, I can speak to that. Uh, the reason the second car is a Porsche as well, it's the one that my wife is driving, is because now I can't really, I can't really buy a Toyota. Like once your, once your mindset is expanded to a certain level, like you can't really go, go beneath it. And for me, if I'm, it's, 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 it's a status purchase. Like I want to be seen driving a Porsche because I feel that's the sort of quality human being that I am. And what's really interesting is that maybe it's because of my upbringing, but I actually do have a measuring scale where I measure the sort of person I'm talking to based on the car they drive. I know it's an inaccurate, but it's the emotional scale. So when I buy a car, I buy a car as an identity statement more than anything else. And the Porsche that I got, I really wanted it because it's it's a mix between a sports car and a family car. The specific uh, Porsche Panamera GTS is a four-seat sedan that fits an entire family of me, my wife, my son, and my daughter. Uh, but it's also like a great performance car that you can take on Nürburgring or something and have fun with. So it's a combo of a high – so it's like for a high-quality, high-end family man – who loves performance, that's the car. That's why, why I was buying it. The previous car before that was an S-Class Mercedes, which I which I honestly just feel is the best day-to-day car a, a, a wealthy individual should be driving because it can be a beast when you need it to be a beast and it can be super comfortable when you need it to be super comfortable. And uh, it's just an amazing, amazing car. It also speaks to the status too. Like if you drive an S-Class, people look at you differently. And I've experienced it myself. Uh, because when I came to Canada, I started out driving like a, a Nissan uh, Panamera. No, uh, Nissan. What's the um, Almera or Altima or something? Nissan. Uh, yeah, there's, there's both. There's an Almera and an Alt. Uh, Alt- yeah. So Nissan. started out like with shitty cars and then moved up and people treated me differently. In fact, even though I was driving a really old Mercedes S-Class uh, 2011 one, at the time, and then the year was, I think, 2018, 17, uh, people still looked at me and they were like, oh, wow, what do you do? You know, they they can't actually tell. Like, even if you're driving an old car, but it's like a high-end old car, they still think highly of you because they think it's old money. They they, they think you made a lot of money like years ago and, and now you're like successful living off of that. I also want to speak to what you mentioned about um, logic versus emotion because the flip side of that is also true, meaning that the reason that I decided to build a product that wasn't selling was mindset because I felt that this is what people are going to buy because that's what I wanted, yeah. right? In other words, like I didn't recognize that market has a mind of its own and I wasn't as pragmatic about my business decision. Uh, I, I was kind of going with my passion. And and you've seen this before, haven't you? Like people be like, oh, yeah, I want to go in business for myself. And this is what I want to because I'm passionate about it. And then nobody wants to buy anything from them because whatever they're doing, no one else is passionate. Like I'm passionate about playing video games, but I probably wouldn't cut it as a streamer um, uh, to make money from it. Plus, uh, you know, 
are you as passionate about video games to actually go and do it 24-7? Because that's how, how much you need to do it to actually make any real money streaming, right? Participate in tournaments and, and, and do whatnot. Um, what I've discovered is that I'm passionate about marketing, but I didn't discover it. I, I, I wasn't aware of it until years into my business after I moved to Canada and I was reflecting on what I'm doing like in the day-to-day and the things that I needed to outsource to other people. And the one thing that I'm refusing to outsource to this day is the marketing stuff, right? It's the ability to to create an idea that other people can buy into. It's the ability to put together an offer that's a sexy offer that an audience would love. It's the ability to build a funnel. You know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not necessarily passionate about putting together funnel pages inside of uh, like a click funnels or whatnot. I, I wouldn't be passionate about that. You know, in fact, as I think about it, I get dizzy. But when it comes to actually putting together the offer or writing the copy or coming up with a, with a product idea that will get somebody excited, I really like get off on that. You know, whenever I watch a documentary, like yesterday, I was watching this documentary about Scientology called Going Clear. Uh, and I was re-watching it because I watched it many, many years ago. And it's like you you listen close enough and, and you discover why people go into a cult, not caring that it's a cult. And they know it. They know they're going into a cult, but they don't care because they need to get rid of this one emotional issue that no other solution proved effective against. You know, they they literally say, you know what? I didn't care. I knew it was a cult and I didn't care because it worked. They're like, as long as it works, I'm in. And they go and they do some irrational shit. Like I'm I'm talking some really scary, heavy duty cult stuff where they were basically giving themselves fully to this idea. And um, um, what's really interesting is that the creator of the cult, Ron uh, L. Ron Hubbard or something, his name is, he was really milking them. Like all the way, like he would kept creating new levels and new levels and new levels and for them to commit more and more and more. And uh, watching the documentary brings up my own memory of being a part of a cult in Florida that's called self-discovery, where it starts out as a way for you to get uh, your emotional issues figured out, if, especially if, if therapy and other stuff didn't help. And then it escalates into a full-blown you're either with us or against us. If your wife doesn't want to join, divorce your wife. And they kind of take over your entire psyche. People have built, I mean, Hitler built fucking Germany, Germany being the most hated country in the world off the back of getting everybody to say, join the German people. People want to belong to something, something that they feel we're a part of this and they'll ignore all the bad shit just to, to get that feeling of, of belonging, that feeling of a team. And that's why, that's why army and soldiers, like, I, I mean, I, I've always said to my kids, you don't go into the army because literally politicians argue about money and oil and all the rest of that shit. And you're going to get killed for it. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Now I'm not against anybody who goes into the army, but people who do go into the army will feel that solid, solid team, like they're a part, but then they'll go off and do super bad things together. And they'll justify it through one another because they've been told it's okay by the government. And they've also, they've got this team thing well it's well it's okay don't worry you didn't mean to shoot that woman in the face and it's like you shot a fucking woman in the face over oil or over whatever it is you're arguing about it's like it, it never makes any sense in my mind and I'm, i've always been like to my my son i've always said don't ever join the army don't ever get involved in that because i don't want you getting involved in politician argument. and i know there's different reasons for going into the army and there's different but in my mind it's all to do with violence it's all to do with power it's all to do with um 
it, it, it's all to do with following the rules and doing as you're told. I guess. Look, army is all about that. Uh, as somebody you who went in the army the as well, army, wasn't you? You went in. Yeah, yeah, I was in the air force, and here's here's what I learned from the air force. Uh, first off, it is all about falling in line. Absolutely. Um, if you don't fall in line, you get punished. They throw you in jail. They take away your off days. They make you go and scrub the the toilets. So they 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 teach you very quickly to fall in line. Or uh, if you don't care about being punished, they actually punish your um, your friends. We had an instance in my um, in my boot camp where this one guy refused to wake up at five a.m. and uh, we would all be up. It's a big tent, you know, about thirty soldiers and our commanding officer, an eighteen-year-old girl, actually, uh, to kind of break your spirits too. Um, so a bunch of big guys, right? And this girl is yelling at them. Um, and this one guy, I don't recall his name, but he was a dick. He was an absolute asshole. We hated him, and he would like. A, a show he would demonstrate he refuses to take uh their shit and he would like stay in bed in his little little bed thing and so what she made us do she made us do the drill of laying in bed waking up putting on our clothes and making the bed and standing next to the bed all within 50 seconds all the way until he actually complied and did it so we had to do it 20 times now as we're doing it we can't get him to wake up. We can't just, you know, fall out of line and go kick his ass. So we had to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it until he actually did it. Now, later we did kick his ass, but <laughs> it was through this exercise that I learned that, you know, one of the ways that they get compliance is they make you feel guilty for having your friends punished. Now, another thing I learned about the army is that it's a bureaucratic machine. And um, just like any governmental agency, it falls it basically has its own rule book. And as long as you can manipulate the rule book, you can get out, you can make it do whatever you want. I know quite a few people who use the, or the Israeli army to get furniture for free, uh, to get uh, living quarters for free, to get a salary actually as well. You could get if you could prove some things. Um, I personally used the bureaucratic structure of the army to find a loophole to get out of the army because having done six years in the academy prior to the army, I wasn't going to serve for more and I really wanted to get out. But there are positives and the positives are discipline because you quickly learn discipline uh, when you get there. And and I've seen how, you know, I come from, from, an, from a family where my father was an army man. My mother was a teacher who was a daughter to an army man. So discipline in my family prevailed. Like there was no issues with that. But I've seen many, many kids who get into the army right after high school and they learn discipline. They actually had to learn some discipline. So that was really interesting. And I think that in any modern Western society, that's actually a benefit. The other thing is that one time, I think two weeks into my boot camp, I went home for a weekend and I found myself feeling uh, miserable. I was missing my boys. Like I, I was genuinely, um, you know, homesick almost uh, to hang out with with my friends back in the tent. So it, it does, you know, when you go through something together with other people, it creates a special bond uh, that you can't create it otherwise. And so, you know, that's just a lesson in, in, um, uh, in, in influence because the same is true if you go and you spend four days at a seminar 
or three days at the Tony Robbins event or, um, you know, at a cult meeting because you get to bond with these people almost, if, if not stronger than you would bond with family members. So, so you become a part of a whole. And um, I, I think many people need that, Mike. I think many people find sol- uh, solace in, in the fact that they can join the army they can become a part of a bigger whole. Uh, they can become a part of something meaningful and they can also escalate. So they find meaning and status in this environment that is the army. Because you brought up Hitler. I'm happy you did because there's a couple of things to be said about Hitler. Um, so first of all, I'm Jewish, right? So not a fan, not a fan of Hitler, but have much respect of him because what he'd done was tremendous. I highly recommend to anyone who's interested in studying Hitler and uh, in, in, in general studying uh, the way Nazis rose to power uh, to read a book uh, called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer. Because he goes deep into communism, Nazism, uh, the the Chinese movement as well, and a bunch of other stuff, including, by the way, marriage. He actually argues that marriage is a cult for women that they uh, aspire to since they are little, uh, which I actually agree <laughs> because it's – I mean it's clear that he's right. So I, I think I'm the lesson with Hitler – I've read about half of that book, but I've not finished it yet. Go on, carry on. <laughs> The lesson with Hitler is first of he found a hungry crowd. That's lesson, you know, that's marketing one on one. He found a crowd that was willing to listen because Germany was going through this ridiculous inflation and and then crisis, and people were were really just angry and, and and hungry and whatnot, and they were still paying off the debts after the First World War. So he knew exactly what to say, and he had a full country full of people that were willing to listen. Now the other thing is. Um, he, um, he, he had the message dialed in as well, right? So he made people so they were already on edge, but he really played on that emotion. He never reasoned, uh, as far as logic go, he just made everyone feel really angry and butthurt about the rest of the world, treating them poorly. And then also proposed the idea that the German people are the chosen people. Now that idea, by the way, is predominant. In the Torah, which I studied because I went to a religious school. So I actually found myself part of lots of different cults throughout my life, like religious school, the army, marriage, you know, like a bunch of different stuff. And, and um, you know, he appealed to purely to emotion. And there's even like lots of stories about how anytime he would go out to give a talk, he would come back into the green room or behind, you know, behind the scenes and he would be exhausted because he would dispense so much energy to get like these giant crowds excited and they would follow him no matter how unreasonable the the task was they would still follow him because he was playing on the right chords and he was a brilliant marketer um and there's also i don't know if you've seen this movie but it was just very very funny um and i guess sort of educational uh there's a movie called look who's back it's a movie about hitler it's a German movie, um, but it's a movie about Hitler coming back to life. All, like out of nowhere, just all of a sudden, he's like lands in a bush, yeah. and, and uh, in Berlin, and and he's like you know wearing the same thing he was wearing when he shot himself back in the bunker, and and he's like you know waking up in in like the year two thousand something, and you watch him be what he is, adjust to the times. 
and immediately once again gain the influence and and the support of the people like he influences people and and, and gets their support in the year 2000 something no and 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 the, it's amazing like that movie is is tremendous showing hitler's ability to persuade it's just you know, very, very, very cool. Very, very cool. If movie. you if you look at um I think it's Blair Warren's one sentence persuasion course. Yeah, amazing. A, amazing. You can absolutely exactly wow. what it says into Hitler's life of, of exactly how he created it. And and I think you can do that with all great leaders. I think the one the one thing all great leaders have had in common is speaking. Is True. Is, is is standing up and actually getting a message across to people without because if, if somebody gets on stage and and, and they're feeble they don't get that same power i mean that was that was um what's his name what's that guy called from from the states who buys all the donald trump he he could get on stage and ramble his way through right for an hour and a half without any paperwork or anything and have the whole crowd on his side within th- within night for 90 minutes solid just just talking shit right but he was so good at it that it just worked it, you know, if you're a fan Michael of Trump, does it actually? Have you ever seen him on stage? Michael Who? Same. Michael, Michael Same. Same. Um, one time. Yeah, he, he came to a, a place in Spain one time, I think it was, and he was on stage talking, right? But he didn't bring any notes. He didn't bring anything. He, 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 he didn't have slides or anything, and he just he just got up and he chatted, and and we were all asking him questions and chatting for about two hours solid. And everybody who left afterwards was like, "That was the best speech out of everything." And he just hit a load of. He did a Donald Trump. That was what he did. <laughs> God, sorry, what was you saying then? No, no, I, I, just, I want to say that if you're a fan of the way Trump is able to influence people, one of the best books that I've read about the topic is by the guy who created the Dilbert comic. I think his name is Scott Adams. And uh, the book title is, um, I'm just going to look it up on Amazon just so I don't give you the wrong title. I think it's called Win Bigly. Oh, Win Bigly, I've got it, I think. I've not read it yet, but I've got, I've got, mate, I've got every book. Me, you know what I'm like. I read, I was reading two books a week, um, and sometimes three. But I've started a podcast now called The Why Debate, and what we do is we get different books every single week, and um, we 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 kind of go through and we read them from cover to cover. Me and a guy called Callum, and then we 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 kind of debate on whether we think it's a load of shit, whether we think it's genuine, whether we think whether the concepts in it have helped change our lives and things like that. So we've done like a Think and Grow Rich. We've done like the uh, high. Um, what do you think? Wait, wait. What do you think of Thinking Grow Rich? Uh, Thinking Grow Rich, right? So we did. We didn't just do that. We've actually got a forty-summit minute video that's going to be released as well about Thinking Grow Rich, and we did a massive backstory in his life and everything. And when we were looking at it, we figured out right that he's a fucking con man, right? All his life, he's an absolute con man. But for some reason, he was so good at bullshitting people that he managed to come up with all these concepts that work amazingly and make people super rich, even though he was never rich himself in his life. He never made any money, right? And the only time he made money was off his book. But because he'd ripped off, he did a, th- he did a thing, right, where he borrowed $100,000 and bought a load of steel, right, off a load of people in America, sold it all and kept the money, right, and then spent it all. Then he wrote his books and he got wealthy off that, but he had to put it in his wife's name because his wife... Uh, because he had so many people after him to try and get the money back that he owed. And then his wife left him and took everything. So he ended up poor. He never did a business, never did a thing. He, he, I, I actually put um, in, in the video, I asked the question, was he, was, he the, was he the first fake guru, all right, or was he an actual prophet? Was he the first fake guru? But like to the point where he was so good at it that it, it, the, guy was, the guy was full of shit, but he was, it worked. <laughs> You know, he never lived his message. 
but the message was great. Um, um, uh, I agree with you that he uh, spent most of his life. He wasn't rich. Um, as far as like, would I get him as a business partner, for example? No, I would, probably wouldn't work with him. Um, and and the but the message he put out was was spot on, and um, I think he's responsible for helping create generations of of yeah, millionaires. Um, and 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 that that there's a lesson in that because. Most gurus today don't actually practice what they preach. And there's the saying, do, do as I say, not as I do, uh, right? It's kind of like, uh, I think it originated from religion where priests were saying, you know, do as I say, not as I do, because priests also have flaws because they're human. And so, you know, you couldn't hold them accountable. Um, the only people I think who can hold you accountable are your kids. Because my daughter wouldn't eat broccoli unless I showed her that I'm eating broccoli. You know what I mean? Like I, I actually have to do everything that I ask her to do first. Otherwise, she won't do it. So she will hold me accountable. But Napoleon Hill is is a great example of how whatever it is that you're 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 saying doesn't have to be real for it to be true and for someone else to learn. I think that's a great lesson for the coaching industry in general, where most people, especially the ones who are very much qualified to teach something, are afraid to teach it because they're like, oh, I'm not qualified. While at the same time, there's tons of other people who teach something in that industry who aren't qualified, but they but they teach concepts and people accept them. You know, that's why fables work. One of my Jesus favorite Christ. ways to... What? Jesus Christ, the parables of Jesus Christ, if you read that, he's literally, he teaches so much shit that he's never done or never been involved in or never, I, I mean, a lot of it he acts out, but I mean, realistically, but he was a, he was a, he was a great, I mean, you can argue it both ways on, on everything I feel. I mean, I'm not religious and, 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 and I've got nothing against or for religion. It's just something that I've never been brought up with. But if you look at Jesus Christ and you look at the parables of Jesus Christ and then you look at the reactions, many millions and millions of people have died because of it. And many millions and millions of people have also found themselves part of a culture and part of, of, of a cult, so to speak, to follow and to be part of. So it kind of, you can look at it from both directions. I, I think it just, humans need to be part of a gang, don't they? They absolutely do. They want to feel noticed. They want to feel seen and like their effort matters. And when you offer them a place where they can participate and their uh, um, effort makes an impact, and you acknowledge that you you bring in people and they'll follow you till till the end of the world if you believe that the world is flat but you know <laughs> <laughs> my brother always goes on about that the world's flat i'm like it's not fucking flat anyway uh, so i've got a couple more things i wanted to ask you i, I promise to keep you on for an hour if i did an hour and five i could probably we should do this again in a few months Igor, because i've really enjoyed this um give us two of your biggest achievements that you've done throughout your career you're most proud of not financially i bought most proud uh, of. so the first place i bought i actually bought it for my parents and i bought it cash it was close to two hundred thousand dollars um and i bought it for my parents i i put my parents into that place and they don't have to worry about rent until the rest of their life and uh you know i also retired my my mom she was still working at the time but i retired her so now they just live off of the allowance i give them and they don't have to pay rent um the other achievement that i'm super proud of that's a good question. Um, it, it's really hard for me sometimes to answer that, especially in relation to what I've done, because I was brought up not to, in a way where I wouldn't celebrate my wins. 
Like mm-hmm. things were expected of me and uh, my wins weren't celebrated. Like when I was when, – when I would bring you know A's from school and show my mom – it wasn't like, oh, well done, high five, let's go, you know, to McDonald's and celebrate together, which is actually a habit that I'm making with my kids for anything that's meaningful that happens. We celebrate it in some way, even if it's a tiny little celebration, just getting like frozen yogurt or something, like to always make a point to to condition them that, yeah, you did well and we're going to celebrate it. Um, so I, I guess, um, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you one. Um Moving to Canada and getting a Canadian citizenship with a passport and everything and settling down in Canada, I feel creates a generational impact on my bloodline in the same way that my parents did when we moved out of Ukraine, which, you know, since the war started, I was able to reflect on it and be like, you know what, might have been a great decision. Like, um, otherwise, I might have been there. I might have been with a rifle in my hands, shot in a ditch somewhere. So um, one of the things I'm really proud of is is this. It's being able to take my family out of Israel. That's not, not the best place to raise a family in, but you know it has its benefits and downsides. But I wasn't cool with all the war, the rockets and the stabbings and the shootings. Um, and move them out to a safe place um, like Canada with a healthy economy. So from here, we can build a base and expand further. So yeah, that, that, would, be, that would be the second one. Canada's got one of the best, um, what do they call it, thingy of living in the world, hasn't it? It's always in the top three yeah. of uh, the, the, the kind of lifestyle that you live. It's also very living. expensive. Um, I think Toronto is the fourth most expensive city in the world. Vancouver might be a little bit more expensive. But as far as quality of life concerned, uh, yeah. Uh, the only downside is we don't get much sun. Uh, that's an issue. So vitamin D is scarce. But other than that, it's it's all right. Yeah, well, I, I don't even know what the sun looks like in the UK, mate. I don't think I don't think we've seen it here since the sixties, <laughs> and that was just one day. <laughs> so, and we we was in Spain for two years, and you know what? I thought I always wanted to live somewhere hot and sunny. I moved us out to Spain, and we wouldn't it probably would have never come back, but we couldn't get the support from my daughter who's artistic, so we had to come back because. The Spanish, unfortunately, because you're English, they haven't got the time of day for you. And it's like being back in the 1980s. So you turn up somewhere and say, look, my daughter's blah, blah, blah. Can you help me? Like, if you've got something wrong with her, you can't come here. And it was just like, what the fuck? Seriously. And we tried about 15 different places. And eventually it's like, we're going to have to take her back so she can so she can learn. And the one thing I've not missed is the weather, right? So, so when you go there for two weeks, okay, mm-hmm. and you're led next to a pool and you've got a drink in your hand and you're on holiday or you're doing whatever it is, or you sat on your laptop next to the pool, which is what I'm normally doing. Um, basically, it's lovely. But when you're in that red hot sun seven days a week, whilst you're trying to work, trying to dress in normal clothes, walk about doing things and mosquitoes driving you insane, you've got to wear shit to stop it. It's actually not all it's cracked up to be. It's great for two weeks because the small things that irritate the crap out of you when you live there don't bother you because it's only two weeks. And since we came back, we moved to the South Coast. So it's, it's, it's a nice part of the UK, but we, uh, I don't, I don't miss it, me. So, so, so if 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 we was to move again from here, I would not go to somewhere hot and sunny uh, because it's the insects are bigger, the animals are bigger, the things that can attack you. I guess you got bears though in Canada, aren't you? Dude, we got we got bears. We got raccoons the size of bears. One time we were in my backyard and there was like this raccoon going over the fence, kind of like 
just walking the fence, you know, like, and it was big. It was like the size of my desk, like really fat too. <laughs> the thing about animals here in Canada, they eat all this junk food. They kind of go into your trash cans and, and, and raid it. So they're pretty big, but yeah, there's always like at least once a week, there's a, there's a bear in the news or a raccoon in the news or, or a moose that, you know, hits something. Uh, uh, but, you know, Canada is like laid back in that way. And there are parts of Canada where you get less snow, more snow. Uh, but yeah, if, if you don't enjoy the heat, I'm sorry, if you don't miss the heat, um, I, I you know, Canada might be an interesting place to, to explore, but it's probably going to be more expensive. Uh, definitely going to be more expensive. I think I think if I was to move anywhere else now, at the time I wanted to move to California, I don't know why, but then I found out it's fifty percent tax uh, and the yeah. higher tax bracket, and it's like probably not then. <laughs> no, fifty percent tax is ridiculous. Um, like I was talking horrendous. to, I was interviewing John Lee Duma from the um, Entrepreneur on Fire. Entrepreneur on Fire, yeah, yeah, and um, he told he said that. You know, he was living in California. He was paying a mil over a million dollars in taxes. I said, "How much were you making?" He's like, "Well, about three million, or something like that, or two or three million. I was like, "Couldn't you figure out like expenses? You know, figure out something that you could buy." It's like not to the extent that it would make a difference. So, and I complain about taxes in Canada. There He's got like, a Puerto Rico now, honey. Yes, yeah, I'm gonna be uh, visiting Puerto Rico uh, next week, so I'm gonna see what all the fuss is about, but. Uh, it's a rainforest, so I'm imagine I imagine the insects are this big, man. Yeah, I can't imagine it's thing yet. I was talking to Davin the other day. Um, in fact, no, it wasn't the other day. It was the last time I was on one of your JV mixers, and um, he was saying, I think he said he lives right near him. Um, and Davin's got a nice place. Have you seen you've seen the view out of his window, aren't you there? Um, yeah, he showed me. Yeah, he sent me some pictures. Fucking beautiful. Last time when we were talking to him on your thing, he's he's got all them gold records behind him, and he was telling me about like he produced Biggie and he produced some of two pack stuff after he died and stuff like that. I was like, no way! Like that's well better than anything we've ever done. You know, I, I'm not even sure why Davin is in the industry. Like how, and I think I told him too. It's like he he you seems like people. a higher caliber. Uh, it's almost mm -hmm. like a step down for him, you know, producing music yeah. to go. <laughs> It just like I think he just likes people. I think he just enjoys it. I think he's he's made that much money that he just enjoys. He's just such a nice guy, isn't he? I, yeah. I don't know anybody that doesn't like him once they met him. He's he's anyway. No, my first encounter to... with him was incidentally. You talk about someone being a giver. My first encounter with him was him taking me, my wife, and our mutual friend Itai, uh, another guy from Israel, um, in Vegas. He took us out to a um, NHL game. It was oh, wow. uh, Dallas Stars against uh, LA Kings, and it was out of nowhere. And uh, you know, he walked. He kind of we were waiting for him at this big square in front of a stadium, and you know, he walks in with his helmet. I was like, "What did you fly here?" It's like, "No, no, I rode my bike." So you look at this guy's like fifty plus, obviously, even it's like rode my bike. So he's like your cool uncle, you know what I mean? <laughs> he's he's cool. When I first met him, I was a bit like, "What?" Well, I think I first met him at an event, and 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 he just seemed to stand out of the crowd a little bit. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's he's a good bloke. But I think he does live near that John Lee Dumas. Um, so there, I mean, Puerto Rico is the place for for no tax, isn't it? Especially if you've not got kids. If you've got kids, then I don't know. Um, I don't know what schooling's like and things like that. So we're always you know, that we came back to the UK because we know they've got it nailed down. Like like the the, the, the standard of living here, if you've got cash, is good, really, really good. Um, and the opportunities are really, really good. Whereas, do you know what I mean? Ten years from now, fifteen years from now, I can say to my missus. 
I've said to her, let's buy a house in Spain because she keeps going on about moving back out there. And I said, well, we'll just buy another house in Spain and just go to on holiday loads of times a year. And she's like, I, I think she wants to live there. <laughs> well, you can't. Your kids have got to come first, don't they? Right. So I know you do a lot to do with email marketing and a lot to do with affiliate marketing. Um, if any of the listeners wanted to get in touch with you, wanted to find out more, what have you got going on at the minute? What where where can they come to join your list, or where can they come to to to, to contact you and become part of your community if 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 they're interested in learning from the best? Yeah, sure. Uh, so first thing is, um, I would recommend getting my book. It's called uh, the List Building Lifestyle Confessions of an Email Millionaire, and you can get it at igorsbook.com. And uh, what you'll get is the book for free. You just chip in and chip in and handling. Oh, there Thanks, we go. Bro. There we go. Got it. <laughs> So you'll you'll go to igorsbook.com and you can get it for free. Just chip in and shipping and handling. And I'll include uh, $3.2,000 in bonuses that include the digital version for free, the audible version for free, and uh, a bunch of my courses and templates for list building and email marketing. Uh, the other thing is I would love for you to check out my podcast. It's called The List Building Lifestyle Show. It's on every platform, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, everything. Uh, so check it out because um, it's a place where I share a lot of my stuff for free. I also invite people like Mike and other, you know, hot superstars who got, you know, some shit going on. And uh, we discuss business, lifestyle. Earlier today, I actually uh, recorded an episode with a guy who specializes in helping people get out of debt and, you know, achieve financial stability through sound financial, you know, just IQ stuff that I think uh, they don't teach in school. So we kind of talk about everything and anything with the focus on getting rich, being free and having control over your life. I love that podcast, The List Building Lifestyle. That's how I got first got to meet Bob Bly because of that podcast, which is... um... Yeah, it's cool. It's good. It's one. It, I've got about five that I listen to, and yours is one of them. Um, I'm, I'm a bit thinking that uh, what's his name? Stop doing this, Dan Kennedy. I used to like that one as well. But and I tell you, who's another good one? Um, not that we're, we're pitching people's podcasts. His name is Alex Amose. That's a great podcast. Yeah, he's not bad. On fire at the minute. Isn't yeah, it? he's he's on, he's switched on. Yep, he switched he's, on. He's done it, mate. He's, he's a grafter. He just he's just focused on what he wanted to do, and he's just gone straight at it till he's hit the fucking brick wall and made millions. And then he's he sold it for something like forty odd million. Now he's doing that acquisition dot com where he's basically teaching people everything for free. But once you get between three and ten million, he'll invest in your company, which is smart as fuck. Because once you go past that three million a year mark, we I found out that everything in in our business until we got to the point where we were doing over seven figures was you were just winging it you just always trying try this let's try this let's try this let's try this and then all of a sudden a few things start to fit and they start to flow and 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 the turnover just boom and shoots up really really quickly but up to that point when you when when you first hitting that first million in fact it's probably your first hundred grand a month that's once you hit that first hundred grand a month everything then starts to to take shape uh, but before that you kind of just you're just running on on energy aren't you Yes, you are. And um, it, it's basically on your shoulders. If you stop working, it stops working because it relies on your unique talent and usually one offer. Um, I, I think Alex Singal does a great breakdown. If you can get him on the show where you know he really understands what it takes to go from zero to six figures, then to six figures a month and on and on and on because he took it all the way to 30 mil a year. And, and he really, and, and then he pivoted and now he's teaching it because you know, I don't know because he was forced to or not, but um, he's doing a great job. So if you can get him on the show, he can really break it down. 
I think the reason people switch into teaching, certain people, some people switch into teaching, they teach because they can't do. And then there's another class of people who teach because once you get to the point where money doesn't matter anymore and you've bought a few houses and you've got all your shit and you've got enough money to last you for the next 10 years in the bank, you're kind of like, what's going to give me the most? And, and actually getting, like you might try and teach 50 people and out of those 50 people, three might only succeed because most people just ain't got the staying power. But watching those three actually become successful, change their lives and become lifelong friends is worth all the money in the world when you do it. Um, and, and I think that's probably why people like him go from making huge amounts of money to saying, you know what, I'm going to start teaching people now because I want to pass this on. And I want to, I mean, Russ Brunson still runs around doing crazy little teaching classes where his fucking business is doing half a billion or something. And he still does it because the buzz you must get off it, having all these people running around making millions just off the shit you've showed up with him. I think he's, he's I don't think there's anything better. I yeah, I'm it. not sure if I'll ever have as much energy as Russell Brunson. That guy's like no. 50 or something, right? Mate, that guy's been sniffing coke since he was six or something. He's like proper, what the fuck? He's brilliant. And, and he's got like four or five kids. It's nuts. Yeah, I think he's got four, yeah, four or five kids. Same woman he met in college. Um, never drunk in his life. Never had a drink. I, I think the drink. secret to infinite energy is to be Mormon. Mormon, yeah. Aren't they allowed to marry loads of women though? That would fucking drain me, that. <laughs> well, you know what? I thought about it, and um, because there's a show, I think it's called Love or something, where a guy is married to three women, and he got the houses next to each other, and he spends like Tuesdays and Wednesdays with one of them, and and so he's got a family with each one, like with kids and everything. Oh, wow! And looking into that life, yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm I'm good with one. I'm I'm good. Yeah. I'm, good. <laughs> I'm good with the flat on my own, and I'll visit. And don't live on my own. I live with my family. But I, I, I personally, I'd, I'd probably. I think my missus would agree to that. Actually, when when we had the big place in Spain, we had a massive uh, thing upstairs, and then the downstairs was was a, a self-contained apartment uh, used for an office. But I had a massive, big, king-size bed and everything there, and I spent loads. I could literally walk out of my office and drop into my pool. It was fucking. It was horrible because when I was sat in the office, I was always looking out to the sun and the view and and you know what it's a lot harder to work in areas like that you just want to you just want to enjoy it but yeah yeah move to canada it's nothing but snow and bears so bears, you don't want to go out you're so you focused <laughs> yeah you know you're so focused <laughs> right i'm going to drag this to an end i've got a webinar in 29 minutes and i've got to jump on with somebody now so mate i really appreciate you coming out i normally keep these down to an hour but i've i've really enjoyed today um i'd love to invite you back on in a few months mate just because i've, I've really it's been great and i just say thank you very very much and everybody um list building lifestyle and get over to ego's book and get yourself a free book with loads of free gifts and free shipping we will put the links down the bottom i will get uh, when the when the video is up the links to, to for you to go and look at that will be down the bottom thank you very much everyone cheers bye-bye <laughs>